Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I am your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We're recording this on Friday, May 6, 2022. And today we are joined by Jack Rice, a former prosecutor and CIA officer who is currently a criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator who you may have seen on Court TV, MSNBC, Fox and more. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. That's great, man. Let's get to this. <laughs> no, I've been thinking about this a lot, seriously. So I thought, you know, what we do is this stuff all day long. So to dig into it with you is pretty fun. This is going to be great. Oh, excellent. Good. We're looking forward to it. Well, we got a lot going on. A lot of cases are, are, are capturing headlines across the nation. So uh, let's jump right in. The first is this crazy case of an escaped inmate and a missing corrections officer who allegedly had a quote unquote special relationship. This is out of Florence, Alabama. We're talking about Casey White, who was 38, and he was an inmate at the La- Lauderdale, pardon me, County Jail. Uh, and was facing charges of two counts of capital murder for the 2020 brutal stabbing of a 58-year-old Connie Ridgeway. Vicki White, uh, no relation, both of them has the last name of White, but they were not related, uh, was the assistant director of corrections at the jail, apparently fled with Casey on Friday. The pair had been linked since late 2020 when Casey was first brought to the jail. It is alleged that Vicky, Vicky was transporting Casey to the courthouse for a mental health evaluation when the escape took place. And now get this, the Friday of the disappearance, I'm sure this is no coincidence, was Vicky's final day before retirement after 15 years in corrections. Lauderdale County Sheriff Rick Singleton explained, what we found out now is that they were in communication from 2020 up until the current day, like communication, visitations, and whatnot. That's a quote. 
which begs the question, how did this not raise eyebrows uh, with other people at the jail? I'm wondering. Uh, U.S. Marshals have issued a $10,000 reward for Im- information leading to the capture of Casey and 5000 for the information leading to Vicky. All right, Jack, uh, let's jump right in. Let's say you are defending Vicky. What are you uh, what are you going after first? What's your defense here? I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Coercion. I was forced. <laughs> Uh, I I mean, I don't know where else you're going to go on this one. I mean, normally when we see these things and you've seen this too, right, Josh, it's when you have that circumstance where somebody is like uh, getting drugs into a jail. And usually that's the extent of it. You're usually not getting that much further. Uh, This sort of, uh, I believe the term you used was whatnot. I don't think uh, we're going to use the term conjugal visits, but let's (laughs) just say uh, apparently the relationship was special. And I think all you're going to be able to do is to somehow call this whether or not he overpowered her, whether or not he was in physical control. Maybe he has somehow had some other ability to threaten her in some way. I mean, the problem is, is my guess is that there's going to be a lot of evidence that's going to roll in over time here from her, from other people. uh, And this is not going to end well for Ms. White, maybe even Mr. White. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think the only thing she can say is somehow she was victimized herself, whether she was right. tricked or coerced or threatened. But if I'm the prosecution, I, I just love that one point that this was the day of her retirement. I mean, if you're going to say she wasn't in on it, why is she waiting until the last day of her retirement before she takes off? It just seems far too planned. Oh, no, there's another piece of evidence that you didn't yeah. even mention that she sold her house at half its value. <laughs> and so so in other words, this was pre-planned. I mean, right. that's the big one. You could call that the idea that this was the last day of retirement. But the idea that she did that tells yeah. you that this was something that she thought about, worked on, established. You ever sold a house? How many right. pieces of paper do you have to sign, for God's sake? And so, you know, <laughs> this was part of that. It has to be. Yeah. Interesting. Have you you know, I, I've often you hear stuff like this, though. This is a remarkable case, but you've heard stuff like this before. You ever have any experience with something like this? I've heard stories of officers sneaking in items and they're really putting their careers at risk. But it shows you how much they are in contact with these in- inmates and that relationships, friendships can actually form. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I, I haven't personally, although I've had connections sort of peripherally, because you got to realize for people who don't work in the world that you and I work in, and, and I've been a, a criminal defense attorney for more than 20 years. And and when I think about this, you realize the relationships that take place between inmates, the relationships that take place between corrections officers, and how in some ways they're very interconnected. I mean, they yeah. really, really are. I, I recall one time I was dealing with a level three sex offender, a client, and I had to walk into a very old jail and it was like a movie set. And, you know, hmm. when you you first come in and the big metal door slides open, you walk in, there's another metal doors and I'm next to his probation officer and the door locks behind me and him. And so we're in this metal box and 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 I look over at him and I could see right on his head, I can see him start to sweat and I see it drip down his face and his eyes are darting back and forth. And he looks at me and he says, God, I hate this place. God, I hate this place. <laughs> and we walk in and, and, and it's lost like Shawshank Redemption. Right. Right. And, and right. so you realize these relationships exist and they're dealing with them in some ways. They spend more times more with, with inmates than they do with their own families. So yeah. the idea that people, for lack of a better word, connect 
in many ways, it's almost surprising that we don't hear more about it yeah. rather than less. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a funny and you make the excellent point. They're they're with these people hours upon hours a day, maybe more waking hours with some of these inmates than they are with their own family. Uh, here's another question for you. Uh, Casey reportedly threatened his ex-girlfriend and her sister that if he ever got out, he would kill them and that he wanted police to kill him. God forbid something like this happens. But let's explore this hypothetical that if he follows through on this threat and he actually kills her or her family, what liability, I'm wondering, could could Vicky have in this in, in being a part? Is she somebody who could be considered an accomplice in something like that? Every state's different. In Minnesota, what I can tell you is she can be charged with aiding and abetting, right? Wow. And that's really true in a lot of places. Sometimes if we think about how, how we would sentence, for instance, here, what you could see is this is an aiding and abetting after the fact. In other words, you have somebody who's kind of hiding somebody after they go out and kill somebody. In that particular case, typically what the standard is here is you could do half the amount of time that the person who killed the guy is, right? But if you're right. involved in helping something happen and you could establish that she knew that he, he actually had threatened to go out and kill these people and then subsequently does, I think you could make the argument that she was fundamentally involved in not just uh, the early stages, but the planning and the operation of these murders. And she yeah. could face exactly what he faces. Now, think about that for a second. Wow. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, we, we all hope that something like that doesn't happen. We hope that they're apprehended uh, safely. But this is certainly something that we're going to keep our eyes on because it's such an intriguing story. Let's switch gears for a second. Let's talk about R. Kelly's attorney uh, is seeking a dismissal of sex abuse and child pornography charges in uh, Chicago. R. Kelly's attorney, her name is Jennifer Bonjean. Shout out to Jennifer. She was a previous guest of this show. Uh, you can check out her episode from October 13th of last year. Very interesting interview if you want to take a listen. Anyhow, Bonjean filed a motion to dismiss 12 of the 13 federal charges R. Kelly is currently facing. Kelly was indicted in 2019 on 12 felony charges for allegedly sexually abusing minors and receiving child pornography. If successful, R. Kelly would only face a single conspiracy charge for trying to cover up his sex crimes. Last September in New York, a federal court, uh, R. Kelly was convicted on eight federal uh, sex trafficking charges and one racketeering charge. So the prosecution in Chicago is really playing with house money, as we would say. Um, Jack, the, the, the crux of this mo motion states, and I'm going to quote from it here, in its recently discovered enthusiasm to prosecute Mr. Kelly, the government reaches back a quarter century to bring charges of sexual abuse and receiving child pornography that have been long time barred. So this is essentially a statute of limitations argument. What do you think about the strength of this, this motion? Well, you know, actually, I like the motion. To be, to be honest, I do. Yeah. I mean, normally, here's what I can tell you. You know this, too, is that if you get a jury who makes a, a decision, you know, they come back and they decide you are guilty. You just about have to have something on videotape that shows that they couldn't have done it in order to convince an appellate court to actually overturn because they never want to step in in front of a fact finder. They almost yeah. never do. But the statute of limitations piece is a little bit different when it comes to admissibility. The problem is, is it depends upon how they got it in. And so if we think about this, I'm dealing with this 
all the time because they with crim sex cases here the statute of limitations has become a big issue and there's a huge fight that i've had to deal with multiple times but the problem what we really have is that they how do i say this legally they hate r kelly yeah they hate they hate this guy and i i used to not think that that mattered but but there's something and i know that this exists it's called the bad guy rule and the bad guy rule means that if you're on an appellate court because i've seen it happen if you're on the supremes wherever you are in whichever state you're in if you if you decide that you hate this guy you're going to find a way to make sure that a conviction sticks now you get bad law all the time because judges will regularly uh, um, bend themselves like gumby in order to make something stick but the problem is is when they do that it creates law because that precedent now drives future cases where the law kind of stinks, but you're doing it because you hate this guy so much because anybody who's sort of watched the R. Kelly stuff and all the things that were on HBO or wherever they were, um, you watch this and you thought to yourself, my God, it's sort of like, it's sort of like watching all of the, the Bill Cosby stuff. When you're thinking about this guy and all of a sudden you look at what he's been doing since the sixties and you say, how far are you willing to go to take somebody down? Yeah. Juries yeah. and judges are willing to go a very, very long way. No, I agree with you. Here's a couple of points I want to get your thoughts on. One, lots of times, and I agree with you, judges will hang their hats on kind of judicial discretion. That you know, I I find you know, using my broad discretion, I find that, you know, they didn't meet their burden, what have you, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to do whatever they want. And I agree with you. They probably don't are not big fans of R. Kelly. However, statute of limitations is like a hard line, right? We're talking about if you if it's if if the case is six years old and the statute of limitations is five years, that's just math. That's not discretion. So that's point number one. Point number two is, do you think, knowing that judges do think about these things, do you think it plays any role in this this Chicago judge's head, the fact that the man isn't going anywhere? He's already been convicted in New York. He's going to stay in prison regardless of the decision that the Chicago judge makes. Do you think he might be more inclined to uh, grant this, knowing that, like I said, they're kind of playing with house money and this conviction is not needed, necessary to put him in prison? Yes. Actually, it's a great way you tee it up because the answer is no harm, no foul. Right. right? I mean, right. no harm, no foul. In, in a particular case like this, the statute of limitations does bar certain kinds of convictions. And it's just how it works. Now, trust me, it, it happened to me in a case not very long ago where literally I found, or I should say, the judge found a way to stretch that statute of limitations a little bit. You mm. can do it some sometimes. But it's a, usually a hard and fast line, and you're either on one side of it or you're on the other. And if it's not going to cost you anything and you say he's going to rot in New York or rot somewhere else, and I don't care where, you, as long as it's not Chicago, then no harm, no foul. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting to see how the judge comes out on this. One other point, uh, and I thought this was in- interesting from a legal perspective, is that te- defense is also arguing that it would endanger Kelly's Fifth Amendment rights to be sentenced while awaiting trial in Chicago. If we can wrap our heads around this, essentially they're asking Kelly, this is the argument, to choose, and this is a quote, between speaking with a defense mitigation specialist and invoking his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. You follow all of that, Jack? Those are big words. Pretty fancy stuff. <laughs> so so uh, give me your thoughts, though. Essentially, they're saying, listen, 
in order to have him properly sentenced, he's got to speak to someone about mitigation, which may cause him to speak about the crimes that he's facing in Chicago. How can he do both and protect his Fifth Amendment rights? What, what are your thoughts? I think it's a loser. I mean, okay. personally, and, and, and this is the only here's a perfect example. It's not quite exact, but it's pretty close is Derek Chauvin went down here in the Twin Cities, the guy who murdered George Floyd. Uh, he went down in, in state court. And then he also had a federal federal trial on different sets of charges. You may recall he was sentenced while charges were pending in federal court. And you could make the argument that he doesn't get to talk to a mitigation specialist and talk about, I admit that I did it. I did this. I did that. This is where I was. There was a whole bunch of reasons he couldn't talk about it because he was facing federal charges at the same time. The problem is, is if you notice, everybody was just fine with that here. No. And unfortunately, he could try to make that argument, sadly, but maybe. Uh, no. I think he's going to fail. Yeah, I, I, I think you might be right on that one. Do you do much uh, federal work in your practice? You know, I really don't. And actually, here's one of the reasons. Um, federal court, state court don't work very well together. Federal court does a lot of big conspiracy cases. And, and they shift. For people who don't know, the weird thing about federal court is that it depends upon what's hot and heavy at the time. Yeah. So in other words, for a long time, what they were doing were big drug cases. And that was just what they did. They still do a lot of that. They still do a yeah. lot of drug stuff. But there was a time when everything they did, they decided it was all about terrorism. So it was yeah. all about terrorism. Everything goes, and they stopped charging. And so they stopped charging all these other cases. They just went after terrorism cases. And and that was a big deal in, in the Twin Cities here where I am, because part of it is there's a very big Somali community here that was mm -hmm. very connected to Mogadishu. And so what you were seeing is people are going and fighting for Al-Shabaab. But there were also people who were potentially tied to 9-11 issues here, too. Uh, Zacharias Massawi, the very first one charged, was out of here. And so oh, wow. that was one of the shifts that the feds will do, whereas uh, the sort of meat and potatoes that I deal with are murder cases, uh, rape cases, serious assault cases, drug cases. And remember, the feds always have the ability, this is true nationwide, they always have the ability in many, many ways beyond what we would expect to sort of reach into state court and pluck out those people they want anyway. Right. And they do right. it all the time. Anything from a simple child pornography case that's a state court crime is also a federal court crime. You have a gun, you have drugs, you have the ability to come in and say, boom, that's a federal charge now. So they do that too. Yeah, you make a really good point that I think a lot of people don't understand of that, the kind of shifting trends within the U.S. attorney's office. I, I, one thing that I experience all the time that is kind of shocking to me still, uh, I was a prosecutor before you were a prosecutor before. I thought that being able to get uh, the the feds, especially to prosecute something, would be a relatively easy task if you're able to, you know, queue up for them a, a crime that you've been committed. And I do mainly criminal defense, but sometimes we're approached by people who are victims of crimes and are need help kind of navigating the waters of the criminal justice system and they want someone to investigate. It is so difficult to get the FBI to open up an investigation. I mean, it, it's it's funny to me how many crimes kind of go unprosecuted sometimes because it might be two kind of small, small chickens for the for the feds or or it's too complex for the state. And and you realize that this person is just going to continue to kind of victimize others. It was a shocking thing for me. I don't know if you've ever had that experience yourself. 
Oh, there's no question that that's true. I think one of the things that I have seen is the feds regularly won't take cases unless they're buttoned up tight. I mean, they hate to lose. And in other words, they will not take cases. The level of cases they will take is is extraordinary. And they take so few cases. And if they don't have a lot of evidence, they simply will not do it. I'll be honest with you, Josh, is one of the reasons I I, I don't like federal court so much is because I feel guilty. I feel like I don't have a shot. I walk in the door with my guy and I actually feel like one of the state cogs where I'm dropping my guy into the hammer in, into the the grinder and I'm helping them put him in. And it's yeah. like if I'm in state court, I feel like, you know what? I know how to play here. And more importantly, when you guys fail and you do, I'm going to be there. And yeah. I'm going to be waiting for you. So so I just want a shot. Give me a shot, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's that's another huge difference that you point out is that state prosecutions, lots of times they're shooting from the hip. I mean, they, they their investigations are, are relatively very short. We were federal. We investigation. were shooting, we were shooting right, from the right, hip. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, gunslingers. Yeah. <laughs> Feds. They won't, t- like you said, the FBI might work up a case for two years with a team of agents on it before it's ever uh, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office so that by the time somebody is indicted, you're, you are done for. There is no there is no stone they have not unturned to figure out everything they need to figure out about someone that they're investigating. It's it's they have unlimited resources and it's remarkable how strong some of their prosecutions are. Yeah, people don't understand what it feels like. I mean, imagine this. I, I walk into a room with my client for something called a proffer. And what right. a proffer is, is where you go in and basically gut yourself in front of these people. And understand what it feels like when I walk in the door, there's an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney. There is an FBI agent. There's an ATF agent. There is somebody from the Department of Homeland Security. I got a couple of local cops. I, I mean, they have seven, eight guys in a room, yeah. you know, yeah. there's they're spending, you know, two thousand dollars an hour just in salaries as they're sitting around me. And I'm like, I mean, I I'm dealing with a murder case and I got, you know, I got one guy sitting across from me going, you know, like behind paper saying, um, which case is yours again? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just so it's a different world sometimes. It, it really is. It really is. Well, that was, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I enjoyed it. But it's a good seg- segue into our next case because it's another federal prosecution. We're talking about Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, the judge in her case reduced her max sentence by 10 years. So a New York federal judge denied a request to overturn her sex trafficking convictions. However, at the same time, the judge did agree with the defense that three of the five guilty charges uh, claiming conspiracy were similar and repetitive and reduced it to a single count, which lowered Maxwell's sentence by 10 years. Uh, Jack, can you, as, as best you can, explain for listeners um, how this works with or instances you experience where uh, they might be seeking charges that are that will be dismissed because they're duplicative in some sort of way? I'll give you the easiest example of this. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when somebody is is arrested for a DWI, a DUI, depending on where you are, they'll charge them two ways. They charge him for driving under the influence of alcohol, and yeah. then they charge him with driving with a blood alcohol level over a certain amount. Right. And so they're actually technically two different charges. But if you actually think about the underlying question, 
it was just one dude driving down the road, bum. And if that's the case, what you don't get to do is you don't get to stack them. Right. You don't get to turn around and say, because of, of his behavior, but be, not, not because of his behavior, but because of how we decided to charge it, we're going to do more things to you. At the end of the day, it has to be about more than just a one act. It's got to be about multiple acts. It's relatively simplistic analysis, but generally speaking, that's what's going on in the Maxwell case. Yeah. In, in California, we have a concept called a Kellett issue, where if a crime, if there are multiple charges for a crime arising out of the same course of conduct, you can't kind of double dip in the same way that you were talking. Uh, 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 an example that I always talk about is if a person's pulled over for driving a stolen vehicle and that's all they're charged with, sometimes you'll see attorneys try to plead them to, to that real quick. And the reason for that was, well, they actually committed a carjacking to get that vehicle to begin with. So if they plead, there's an argument to be made that if they plead to the stolen vehicle, then they can't go ahead and add that carjacking later on. It prevents them from doing that. So it is something that uh, is is a concern for, for prosecutors and something that would defense that work, attorneys- Would that work though, Josh? I mean, would, would that really work if you could make the argument that, you know, let's let's say that, that I kill somebody right and 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 then I'm driving away uh and and then they get me for some other speeding act. and you can somehow try to make <laughs> reckless driving right and, and and I go in and I say I say you got me I was going 85 and right. a 60 right <laughs> it's like okay baby and you know I'll I'll pay the max fine right now I mean, can't they actually say these are two separate incidences? They build that they, wall. They can and they do. And that's where, you know, despite the best efforts of some defense attorneys, you know, that judicial that idea that we talked about before judicial discretion steps in and they're never going to allow that kind of a miscarriage of justice. You know, it, it, there are there are certainly loopholes to take advantage of in the system and case law. Uh, but but there's also ways for judges to close the door on that, as I'm sure you're See, you have plenty of experience with. Yeah. What is that? What does that say? The bad guy rule applies in California, too. Exactly. It's Come a, on, it's I'm, a, a I'm a California boy, boy, man. I, I was born. I was raised. I grew up in, in California, so I I know it well. And you and I'm guessing you moved for the weather. <laughs> Okay, hold on. That was hold on here. <laughs> I, I was I was born in San Diego. I live in Minneapolis, St. Paul. If you don't understand what that means, <laughs> contemplate this for a second. In the middle of winter, you can go outside and your eyes will start to freeze shut, oh, and the man. and the mucus in your nose will actually start to like like solidify because it's so cold. I have felt forty below zero actual temperature here. It is insanity, but but it, it's it's not for the weak of heart. But there's something no. sort of amusing about it. So you know, yeah. Well, God bless. I I lived in Chicago <laughs> for about four years, and that was enough for me. I, I I'm I I will be willing to admit I ran back home for the weather. This is the big case. This is the one we've all been waiting for. This is Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. And just to catch everybody up, Amber Heard took the stand this week for her defense. Uh, her case has now started in the $50 million defamation lawsuit leveled by her ex-husband, Johnny Depp. She detailed for the first time how Johnny Depp slapped her reportedly in March of 2013. She also claimed that he performed a cavity search on herd while the two were on mushrooms. 
He also allegedly made threats against her life, and she claims broke her nose after a fight which took place after a, the 2014 Met Gala. She also began documenting his drug and alcohol use after she claims no one believed her or confronted the problem. Uh, I'm sure this was her team's attempt to uh, uh, to begin to explain all of the videotaping and, and secret uh, recordings. Uh, the court is adjourned for a week-long break, so it's set to resume on May 16th with closing arguments set for May 27th. Uh, first question for you, Jack, is has Heard's testimony, I know you've watched some of it pretty closely, changed any of your views on the on the possible outcome of this case? Or do you have a view on the outcome of this case? I, I would say it has uh, in, in this sense. If we look really first at Depp's case, I think that his team did extraordinarily well. I thought that his testimony really was effective. And and what I really felt like, it it felt funny, self-deprecating. It almost felt yeah. like in many ways, he sort of pulled the curtain back and you could look behind his life and he's like, yeah, I know I'm a bit of a train wreck. I admit it, I acknowledge it, but you know, it's kind of like, it's sort of what I am. I, I mean, I can live kind of large, but but everybody sort of bought into it because there's one thing that he presented, and this is something that you and I desperately want from every single witness, especially our own clients. And what that is, is authenticity. They also put forward a really good expert, and that was in Dr. Curry. And I think what she was able to do was was to analyze Amber Heard in, in a really brutal way. And in fact, it was so brutal that I think the reason the Heard team made the decision to put their expert on first is they had to blunt that testimony. They had to do it. Normally, you would put your star witnesses on first or last. And the reason is, is because you, you, that's what people remember. They, they remember primacy and recency. If you put it on first, you remember it. You put it on last, you absolutely remember it. You put it on in the middle, meh, you might get some of it. In this case, you needed to tee her up first. So all that to, to sort of answer your question, what Amber Heard has done has been able to cloud this enough and to, to present some evidence that would make some people go, hmm. Now, yeah. of course, I would ask the same question and say, okay, you videotaped extraordinary amounts. You've audiotaped extraordinary amounts. And yet, not a single, not a single audio or videotape of him assaulting you. But everything else you seem to have. I also yeah. find her to be somewhat wooden. Um, and it feels rehearsed to me. Now, a lot of a lot of people being, saying that. Yeah, but that being said, there will be some jurors who will look at this and say, yeah, these guys are train wrecks, both of them, both of them. And before she took the stand, I think people were looking at this saying, yeah, but we love John. We love, we love John. Yeah. And so you would say, Amber Heard, now that's a train wreck. Now, I think you're kind of saying, yeah, they're both train wrecks. So yes, yeah. I think the impact is there. Yeah, that, that was such a great point you made about, I, I was wondering too, why they made the decision to put the expert on first, because just it's usually just not how it's done. You usually kind no. of finish with that uh, to kind of give you conclusions about the testimony that you've just witnessed and other witnesses. But you make such a good point that that witness, the expert witness for Depp was so devastating for Heard. One of the things she diagnosed Heard with is having borderline personality disorder. Essentially, she's saying, she's she's you know 
half crazy and probably a liar. And so I think you're right. They had to do something about that immediately. Interesting strategic decision. I'm sh- I, I wonder if that is actually why they did it. But I, I like your point on that. You also t- t- talked a little bit about her demeanor, and I wanted to get into that a little bit more. One thing that people are really noticing is every answer that Heard gives, she is she's looking at her attorney for the question, and then she turns to the jurors to give the answer. And that is not a behavior that is that is natural to most witnesses. And I'm sure you've experienced this. Most witnesses are having a dialogue with the person asking the questions and they're looking at the person who's asking the questions. That is a trait of people who are usually professionals at testifying in court, experts, doctors, things like that. And I'm sure I'm I'm positive that was something that that Heard was coached on. My wonder is, does that make her look more or less authentic um, to the jury. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oddly, in this case, I think it makes her look less authentic. Yeah. And, and the reason, and I think you alluded to it yourself, right, is that this is not what normal people do. I mean, we're used to pros doing this. Cops are professional witnesses. When they're at the academy, this is literally what they're trained to do. They will listen to an answer to a question. They will pivot. They'll look straight at the jury and they will say, This is what I saw. This is what I did. But when you get a normal person, and frankly, dare I I call Johnny Depp, my God, dare I call Johnny Depp a normal person? (laughs) But but, but Johnny Depp didn't do that. Johnny Depp was like, and he's looking down and he's looking around and he looks up and he's like, and then he would kind of, but I think his mannerisms were, were authentic authentic and and yeah. i think you're going to look at her and it feels it feels different than that now, now of course you know that all being said and you and i have done this many times i know i know you have we have worked our our clients and we've worked them to the point that we're beating on them ourselves <laughs> and we're like no now i'm going to cross you but more right. importantly i'm going to help you get your testimony in the problem is frequently not their testimony the problem is, is the cross. If you get a yeah. good cross examination of Amber Heard, where they come back and they can establish a half a dozen, four or five objectively false statements that she makes, where she absolutely lies. What you get to then do is you use those examples and say, remember, jury, how she pivoted at you? Remember how she was perfect and quaffed as she answered these questions? Remember how calculated she was when her hair was in braids and perfect and all this and then her first day of testimony i don't even know what the hell that was but but i know that it was designed to do something to manipulate you just like she manipulated johnny just like she tried to manipulate the washington post just like she tried to manipulate the me too movement because she's not just a liar she's an opportunist and as an opportunist what she's trying to do was she tried to hook herself to the Johnny Depp star. And then when that didn't play out the way she liked it, she decided to, to hook herself to the Me Too movement and take it down so long as she could lift herself up because she does not care. That's the <laughs> argument you got to make. I, I I have a feeling that when this airs, you're going to be getting calls from the Depp team. That was that was yeah. great. Um, uh, but you make you and me, you make, brother, you and me, we'll do this together. 
you make a really excellent point that it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters how she's doing now, but where the rubber hits the road is how she does on cross-examination. And if all of the, if, of all her demeanor and this kind of, I was uh, victimized and I'm just kind of a small town girl and he plucked me out of, you know, uh, it, it plucked me and hit, put me into his celebrity lifestyle. If all that stuff starts to fall apart and she shows any kind of, um, uh, glimmer or, or or hint of kind of the Amber Heard that we've heard on some of those recordings. I agree with you that it, this thing could fall apart for her pretty quickly. One other question I had for you is the other thing that's kind of remarkable during her testimony is that Johnny Depp is looking down and I, he's either looking at a computer or whatever's in front of him. And I don't think he's looked up one single time. And again, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's purposeful. And I'm curious as, as to why you think they would coach him to do that. And what do you think uh, an impression that is making with the jurors? You know, it's an interesting question. I've been thinking about this. And I know you mentioned that even publicly on social media and stuff. And I've been thinking about what you when you did that. And I thought, really smart. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons and one of the things that I think he did very authentically was this, they spent a lot of time talking about his mom and talking about the abuse that he, he felt um, from, from his childhood. And what you saw when he started talking about Amber Heard was I felt the echoes, the echoes of his childhood when she treated him and she would argue and fight. And if he tried to separate himself, she would actually increase and advance and attack. And what I saw was the echoes of his childhood when I heard him say that. When I see him sitting at the desk, looking down, not making eye contact, not being connected to her, I think a very strong argument is that guy's a victim. This is somebody who can't put his chest back and laugh yeah. and find this all amusing because it's not amusing. This is absolutely brutal, not in the sense of, oh, I don't get this job, but understand what it is to be an eight-year-old boy who, who was desperately trying to get out only to fall back in to this. And I think that's the argument that you make. And I think that's actually what they're doing in this case. That's interesting. I hadn't, I had not thought about it that way. Usually, Usually when clients are instructed or purposefully kind of looking down, paying attention to their notes or something, it's usually done as a kind of a key or, or cue, pardon me, to the jury that I'm not paying attention to this and neither should you. This 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 testimony is not all that important. And that's why I'm, I'm busying myself with kind of looking at other things and doing other yeah, things. Yeah, but, but Josh, I, I you and I both know, but you and I both know that everybody knows this testimony matters. No, Everybody, I know. Like, you know, like the jury was like they were looking at other people when other witnesses were coming on at the back end of Depp's Depp's uh, um, uh, case in chief. But what they were doing was they were leaning in, saying, OK, put that woman on the stand. Right. I mean, we got to hear what she has to say. So everybody knows that this is critical. No, of course. And so that's why I'm saying I don't think that's the the strategy here with her. I, 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 I agree with you. I hadn't thought about that, but I agree with you. It probably it probably helps in his argument that he was victimized, that he can't even make eye contact her with her. And the other thing is that, you know, uh, you know, optics are so important. I mean, it, you know, half of the time you can watch these trials with the sound off and you can start understanding which way a jury might be leaning. But I think the the optics of if he were not to be looking down, but looking at her, 
they would constantly be looking at him for his reactions to to the things that she's saying. And right. that might not work out for him. But but with him able to just kind of look down, he's not really he's not really giving them much to hold against him as well, on top of the points that you just made. Kind of turning to another topic on this, it's interesting to me that they're they're about to take a week-long break, the jury. You think there's any chance they can avoid the media storm surrounding this case? In your experience in these high-profile cases, how hard is it to get jurors to not pay attention to the news? It's impossible. And I think when you look at this case in particular, uh, you can see just how deeply it is cut into society. I mean, we think about all of the other things going on right now, whether it's the Supreme Court, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on anyplace else in the world. And I have to tell you, this is popping up in front of both. And and that is happening at such a level that it, it has worked its way into all of our society. I mean, how many times have you walked into a grocery store, you're in a mall, you're at work, you're someplace else, and you'll walk in and there's 10 people, and not a single person is talking to anybody else, but their phone is out. This yeah. is everywhere. So you're not going to be able to miss this. And I think... Yeah. If the, if the depth team in particular is smart, you and I talked a little bit about this before I came on, is they need to think about how they play the rest of this trial. Yes, the cross, I think, has to be very carefully addressed because I think some could see her as, as being a victim. And I think what's very important is you don't ramp up unless you have to. I, I tell clients this all the time, is that, is that it's – it's it's easy to ramp up. It's very hard to ramp down. It's very hard to do. And so what you have to be able to do is low and slow, know what you're trying to do, know exactly how you can do it, get in, do what you're doing. Now, depending upon her stability or lack thereof, there may be a reason to go after her until she actually snaps. Yeah. And that might be something to consider. But that's exactly what they're talking about right now. That's exactly what the depth team is thinking about in terms of if we're going to do this, how do we do it? This is yeah. going to be calculated. This this is exactly what you would imagine. Now, going back to uh, your, your point about the jurors and their ability to avoid the media for, for a quick second. Uh, it's funny you point out about social media or, or our phones. And even we live in a time where even if you're trying to avoid the news, sometimes you can't help it. It's forced upon you. And it reminded me of what happened in the Sarah Palin case with her defamation suit, where the judge was going to rule against, uh, uh, was going to dismiss the case as the jurors were deliberating. They got news flashes alerting them to that on their phones. They weren't looking for it. It just popped up on their phone. I can't imagine you're not going to have some of these jurors, even if they're doing their best efforts, not hear some of the news and some of the reaction to people. It's all over the place on this case. I'll tell um, you what, look, I'm, I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, St. Paul. I was here in the middle of the Derek Chauvin, uh, George Floyd murder trial. And you want to talk about the entire world looking at this little piece of real estate. I mean, literally everybody on the planet heard about that murder. Yeah. And everybody on the planet saw that nine minute and 29 second videotape. Everybody knew what that meant. And that was before they even walked in to actually try that case. And so that's an example of when you have something that inundates you to the point that it's not just about the law anymore. It, it's, it becomes pop culture. It becomes 
our, our entertainment. It becomes what we do when we wake up. It's what we do before we go to bed. And yeah. that's so oh, invasive. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Jack, you had a really interesting take on how the depth team should handle their closing when we had spoken uh, earlier. Could you explain that for listeners? Because I just love the way that you, you think they should approach it. When the depth team is in closing, I, I think they should very quietly, very thoroughly work their way through the evidence to establish why they're right. When you look at where Johnny Depp came from, who Johnny Depp is, and my response is from my perspective, Johnny Depp is that eight-year-old because that never goes away. It will always be with him. It haunts him every single day, no matter when he was doing everything he could when he buried his mom. You can't bury that. That is a piece of this. And what she did was she victimized him again, and she took that eight-year-old boy, and she held him up, and she shook him. That's what she did. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, all seven of you of the jury, we have been fighting this fight for four years, and we've been in this courtroom for six weeks now. I want to thank you. I want to thank you because what you did was you brought out the truth, the truth of her being the victimizer in this case, the truth of Johnny Depp being the victim in this case, the fact that not only has she lied again and again, and we've proven that, but that she's manipulated Johnny Depp from the beginning because she wanted so desperately to tie herself to Johnny. And then when that didn't work, what did she do? She went to the Washington Post so she could actually try to co-opt the Me Too movement so she could become the spokesperson of that very same movement, regardless of it, the fact that it was false, because she doesn't care. She's a manipulator. She's a taker. She's a liar. She's an opportunist. In the end, this was about one thing, and it was about telling the truth. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, all seven of you, you made the truth happen. So much so that that's all we ever wanted. From the beginning, we just desperately needed the truth. As a result, we don't want a dollar from Amber Heard. We don't want a single solitary dollar. The truth that came out before you was all we asked for. And for that, thank you. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to get phone calls from his team. Do you, you better keep your phone on. <laughs> um, Jack, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, the website, jackricelaw.com. Um, you know, it's like you and me, man. We're, we're, we work, we're in court. When we're, I was in court this morning, I'm, I'm teaching a CLE this afternoon for work stuff, but you and I are pretty much everywhere. So it's what we do. And I, honestly, this was thrilling for me. You're, you're a, a great lawyer. Your reputation uh, is beyond Los Angeles, way beyond. So when I received a call from, from your minions, you have minions, by the way. When I received a call from your minions saying, you want to come on with, with, with Josh? I'm like, uh, what, me? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I thought, yeah, no, where can we do it? You're, you're so, too kind. It was This was an absolute blast. Thank you again. Um, I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ, and you can find our sidebarred episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. 
and thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>